Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so, Father, we thank you for this text. We ask now that you would help us as we work our way through it. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. If you go to the next slide, I want to kind of give a sort of a, a reminder of where we are. This letter in the first two verses, we learned that it was written by Paul. As he writes this letter, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. He says that he's writing also with his brother or their brother, Timothy, who is a, a believer in the Lord. And he writes to the church, the saints in Colossae, those who have trusted in Christ, Uh, Paul found himself in prison in Rome under house arrest up in Italy, about a thousand miles away. If you come across flying over modern day Greece right here, you come to modern day Turkey coming up to this picture. It's a magnified picture of Turkey. You'll see Ephesus, which is where the letter of Ephesians was written to likely during this same time when he sent Colossians, he likely sent Ephesians and he sent the letter of Philemon with the letter of Colossians. 
80 miles inland, you come to Colossae that sat in the shadow of two other towns that are mentioned in the book of Colossians, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Hierapolis, there we go, that sounds good. Colossae was a small town. In this town, there was a pastor, Epaphras, who came to the Lord through Paul's teaching in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, we are told that Paul was in Ephesus for two years. He rented a, a classroom or a room that was kind of like in a library setting. And there, during the afternoons, he would teach the things of God. And, and, and many people passed through. One of these guys was Epaphras. Epaphras went back to Colossae, and he planted churches in these three towns. Now, as he ministered there, a problem began to creep into the church. It's Gnosticism, teaching that Christ wasn't sufficient on his own, that, that because Jesus was man, he was created of matter. And all matter, everything that you can touch, is evil. And God is separate from things that are created. And Jesus couldn't have been God because he was flesh. And also, you can't know the things of the Lord in of themselves it requires mysticism and special teaching. And you had to come to them for the codes and the secrets. And then they would take it from Jesus and teach you the mysteries to a select few that you could eventually find your way to God. Now, Epaphras didn't quite know how to handle the situation. So he makes the journey to Rome to speak with Paul, who was the pastor that taught him. And as Epaphras meets with Paul, talks with Paul, figures out what's going on, Paul writes this letter to address these concerns. We also learn through this letter that while he's there, Paul had met a man named Onesimus, who was a slave that had stolen from his owner Philemon, and he'd run away, and he'd become a Christian under Paul. And Paul says, you know what, you have to face your past. Epaphras is going back to your hometown, you need to go with him. I'll settle the score. If, you're, if you owe anything to Philemon, I'll pay him back. But you need to go and face him. And so on the journey back, Tychicus, I, I don't know that Epaphras went back, but Tychicus goes back to deliver the letters. Onesimus goes with him to deliver this letter of Philemon to settle the score. And so as the introduction happens, really in verse 6 of chapter 2, we get into the body of the letter. Up to this point, Paul has identified himself. He's prayed with them. He's praised them for the things that he's heard about them. That they had walked in faith. That they had trusted in Christ. That his work on the cross alone. That their love abounded to the saints. That their hope in the gospel, the future, that they had in store for him. All of these things were good. And as he talked about Christ, last week we looked at this This. Paul had looked at Jesus every which way to make it clear that he is God. And in verse 6, we come to this, verse 6 and 7, it's like back to the basics. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He kind of goes back to the core, the very first step of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian. I was a SEAL for a long time. We, I shot, I don't even know how many rounds. At, at the end of my career, before I went to be an instructor on my last deployment, getting back in 2001, I, I could just think where I wanted a bullet to go, and it would go, like, 
in a tiny little hole, I could send a bunch of rounds there. I was an expert. I took 10 years off, you know, for stuff like marriage and Bible college and seminary and other, you know, you had to buy bullets now in the outside world. And then God slowly like opens up the door for me to go to the SWAT team. So it's 10 years since I've been a SEAL, but I'm still a SEAL as far as everybody's concerned. And I get an opportunity to go shoot again. Let's just say it wasn't pretty. It's a perishable skill. And it was horrible because as I was like trying to keep up with these guys, I'm going, man, I'm, they just threw me in the lineup with the guys and they're doing quick draws and they're doing stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm going to so shoot myself in the foot trying to keep up because I can't like say there wasn't like an opportunity for me to go off in the corner and, and practice. And then as I was that first time and they were like lecturing them, I, I started hearing phrases that sounded very common to me. Front sight focus. Easy squeeze. These are the fundamentals of shooting that I don't care what level you're at. When you learn how to shoot, what they're going to teach you is to focus on your front sight, that you have a clear sight picture. That's all you need. And then to easy squeeze on the trigger to pull it slowly and the bullet will go where it's supposed to go. But it doesn't matter if it's your first day in class or you've been an expert shooter shooting for, you know, 20 years, you're going to get that same lecture of, Front sight focus, easy squeeze. It's the fundamentals. It's the basics. Lombardi, during his opening season, is famous for the, gentlemen, this is a football. Talking to the Packers, who were like top of their their competitiveness, uh, they were the best at the time. And he started out the season, gentlemen, this is a football. And the point was, hey, we're going to focus on the basics. It's not about all this other stuff. You focus on the fundamentals. And what I see Paul doing in this section is it's very much the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Christianity. This is the nuts and bolts. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by what they're teaching you. There's not a bunch of codes. There's not a bunch of secret mystical things that you have to unlock in order to get to the truth. I've proclaimed the truth. to You You have the truth. And he says that you have Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, or Christ Jesus the Lord, this received is in the perfect tense, meaning that it was something that happened once in the past, and that it has continuing action in the future. It's not something that was done over and over again. He says that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. And it's interesting, these three terms We kind of use them interchangeably and think that they're sort of synonymous, sort of like Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Well, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, that he's the promised one. Jesus, the synonym for Joshua of the Old Testament, Savior. And then we have Lord, that he's Lord over all, which Paul has established. And he says, you received him. Well, what does this mean? In his other letter that he wrote during the same time in Ephesians 1.13, he says, but after hearing the gospel, what is the gospel? This is important for us to understand. 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses say that the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins. That he was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and then he appeared to many. And he lists all of the people that he appeared to. 
And so you hear the gospel that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. It wasn't something new that God made up on the spot. We see the gospel all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the foretelling as the curse is given to the serpent. It says that when you heard it, you believed. And that belief is what basically secured your position in heaven. Not works, not things that you are doing, but belief It says that you're sealed in the spirit until the day of redemption. And so Paul says here, they did this. Therefore, as you've received Christ, it was a it was an action that had already been done. So walk in him and this walking in him. It's it's interesting that they didn't receive uh, a certain saying or a code. They received the Lord Christ himself. Jesus is alive. And that if you've trusted in Christ, you received the person of Christ, that we have this relationship with Jesus. Not this relationship or these actions of motions of going through religious hoops where we do certain things to try to earn favor with God. We actually come into a relationship with the living God who interacts with us. So, so walk in him, live your life with him. And as I read this, what my favorite passage and i and i really mean that like i say that there's a lot of tops but one of my favorite passages in the whole bible is ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 and 16 and i'd ask you to turn over to there i believe that ephesians was the letter at the end of colossians paul tells him hey once you get this there's another letter that's going to be circulating around that i sent make sure you get a copy and you read it and in ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, Paul says, therefore, be careful how you walk, talking about your lifestyle. Be careful how you live your life, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And remember the the prayer we prayed, Colossians 1, 9 through 13, Paul's prayer is that they would understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, be careful how you walk here. As you live your life, be careful that the days, the world around us is evil. I didn't actually see the video. I saw the picture on the front page, but apparently some guy walked across Niagara Falls on a, on a two inch rope. Yeah, I kind of think it was cheating because on the picture, like I, I, I thought there, I saw a safety line going down to the rope. Doesn't count in my opinion. If you really want to be legitimate, do it with no safety line. Prove yourself. You know, that's that's just not related. But I didn't see the video, but he's holding a pole. And I, my guess is that he was very focused on his each step and how he was living for fear of the safety line catching him if he slipped. But if he didn't have that safety line, there would be focus on what he's doing because the, the consequences are severe. And Paul says here, listen, the world around us is evil. We are outsiders in a foreign place living for Christ. The desires of our heart, the desires of this world, everything is going to pull us away. So you need to be careful in how you live your life, making the most of your time of a phrase I messed up for most of my life because I heard time is chronos, meaning there's 24 hours in a day. And so you have to make the most of that time. Do as much as you can. Cram as much as you can into that that 24-hour window. I still struggle with this problem. 
but it's not chronos, it's kairos. It literally, that within a 24-hour window, there are certain opportunities that come. And you need to make the most of those opportunities that are presented to you. And I would say to dads on this Father's Day, we need to make the most of the time that we have with our children, moms and dads. Like, I'll never forget Joel Couyers. Like, when I walked in with Elizabeth, she'd just been born like three days before he looked at me with a tear in her eye and he said, she's gone. She's not gone. I just got her. He's like, she'll be gone before you know it. She's already married off away. And I'm like, he's like, Craig, he just had married his daughter or was in the preparation. And I'm like, Joel, give me this like moment. But we dads suffer the temptation of working too hard, being so busy with other distractions, and we miss the opportunity that we were given. The men's pastor at Charles Swindoll's church, I forget his name off the top of my head, he said something that was profound. I don't know if it originated with him, but he said, you know, in our culture, there's, there's so much, and oh, spend quality time with your family. And, and so we, we burn so much time and then we come together. And it's like, okay, this is quality time. Let's spend our quality time. He said something that struck me. He said, quality time comes within quantity of time. You don't plan quality time. Within quantity of time, you have moments that you cherish, that you can't foresee. And so as I read this, especially on Father's Day, make the most of your time. Take those opportunities that God gives you to cherish with your family because the days are evil. And so as Paul says in Colossians, going back here, Colossians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, as you have, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Live your life. Be careful. Make the most of every opportunity. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. When I first came to Christ. When I first received Jesus, I was so dead in my trespasses and sins. People say, oh, it's a handicap, it's a crutch. It was more than a crutch. I mean, a life support system. You need to understand your situation before the Lord apart from Christ. It's a grave condition. That weight upon you should be heavy. One of the sermons that sparked one of the revivals in American history was preached by John Edwards, and it was sinners in the hand of an angry God. And it's it, he literally manuscripted it out, and he sat there, and he just read line for line. And there's this picture describing the sinner as if we're a spider hanging by one thread over this raging fire. And in this understanding our situation apart from Christ, that sparked one of the greatest revivals in American history. We need to understand our condition apart from Christ. And then when you come to Christ and you receive him as Savior and you're placed into the body of Christ, that you're set free from the bondage of sin, there's so much gratitude, as he writes here, overflowing with gratitude. We praise him because of what he's done for us. We can't do anything on our own strength. The more we try, the deeper hole we dig for ourselves. He paints this picture being rooted in him, firmly rooted and being built up in him, established in your faith. 
It reminds me that we just finished Luke in Luke chapter eight in the, the parable of the seed. And Jesus describes the seed that goes out in the seed that fell in different soils. Well, the good soil, he describes saying this, he says, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. That the word goes out, it takes root and you become grounded and that these roots go down. Sounds a lot like Psalm one, one of the, the most beautiful Psalms, in my opinion, in Psalm one, verse two and three, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. And there's this stability throughout this. If we back up to where we left off last week, verse five, Paul says, for even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That there's this idea that Paul desires those that have trusted in Christ to reach steadfastness, to be steady, to be enduring patiently is what it literally means. And when we see this picture of roots being planted, being built up in him, established in your faith as you were instructed, I get this picture of an oak tree. One of the things that I, man, I love about our new house is we have oak trees. And oak trees that are like 100 years old, they're massive. Their roots take a long time to get down. But once their roots get down, they go up and they get huge and they get solid. We always see eucalyptus trees kind of tipping over during the windstorms. They go up fast. I mean, they, I think they grow like a, maybe a foot a week or something. I mean, they, they grow at an amazing rate. But their root system it doesn't give them stability. And so Paul wants us to, to grow in Christ, to stay focused on Christ. And as he ends here, overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive. This is a warning. This is a concern to those that are reading. I alluded it to verse four where I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. To delude means to impose a misleading belief upon somebody that those were coming in and they were teaching them, leading them away. He says that he's saying this because he doesn't want this to happen. Now, in verse eight, he's more direct. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. It puts the offensive on you that you're to guard yourself. As a seal, one of every time before a real world operation, attorneys would come in and brief you on your ROEs, your rules of engagement. There were certain things that you can engage uh, that were all the line was always flexible depending on the operation. Now, one rule of engagement never changes, and all of us have the same engagement, the same engagement, the same right is that there was always the right to defend yourself for preservation of life. That if your life was in jeopardy under any circumstance due to a threat of anybody, you had a right to defend yourself. As people in our, in our country, if, if somebody's trying to take your life, you have the right to defend yourself, to preserve your own life. And Paul here, I see this. He's telling me, you need to preserve your life in Christ. Put borders up. Be careful. Don't let people lead you astray. 
See to it that no one, it not even just leave, lead you astray, but that you become captive, that you're taken prisoner in the mind. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free, that we've been set free. And religious people will want to come in and put you back into bondage. That, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for you, but as we're going to see in this passage, if you eat certain things or you wear certain things or you don't honor certain days or you don't do this or you do this, you're going to lose your favor with God. And then you become a prisoner to religion, which isn't what Christ wants. He says, see to it that nobody takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That Jesus is so in the center of everything. And as I look at this, see, I, I kind of, I mean, I guess I was forced to be a pastor. Like, it wasn't like I was on this path, like I was four years old, I accepted Christ. And then when I was six, I, I, I realized that God had called me into the ministry. I hear people say that. I, I don't understand how that works. But some great guys like Spurgeon and others, like they had this early call. They recognized it. I kind of became a Christian and suddenly I was not raised in a faith tradition where the Bible was really like handed to you at all. And then I became a Christian and it was like then in evangelical circles, I was like encouraged to buy a Bible and to read it and to study it. And as I came to know who Jesus was, man, I had a lot of questions. And so my plan for answering all these questions, I would just read through the Bible. And if I read through the Bible, then all my questions would be answered. (laughs) I still got questions and I'm still reading through the Bible. And some of the questions have been answered for sure. But it boggles my mind that people who profess Christ, that they understand that he is Lord and Savior of all, that they've received him as their personal Savior, that he's the answer. And then they kind of close their Bibles and then they go through their life. Like if this is the word of God, as Beth Moore says, that as you open this, it's like God's warm breath is still on the words. That we close this, that we should be hungry, not because of religion. But if you're in a relationship with somebody like talking to my wife is not a burden. Like in before we were married, when I was deployed in the Middle East, oh, I longed. For that time of communion with her, speaking to her on the phone or writing letters. Christ hasn't come back for the bride of Christ. In his absence, we should long for him. And I don't understand how people can be apathetic towards wanting to get into the word. That the word gives so much warning for how we're to live our life. It forces us to desire it, to long it, to want to be in it. And my desire for studying the scriptures doesn't come because I'm a pastor. It comes because of my passion for the Lord and I want to know him more. And my prayer for all of you is that he would light that fire in you that you would be studying the word. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. It's not just the word. Like, what church do you go to? Maybe this is your church. And I hope that if this is your church, that you're here because... The word is taught that this is the rudder of our church. If you're visiting from somewhere else, I pray that you find a church that you're intentional. Do they teach the Bible there? Who are you hanging out with? 
Who are your friends? Who's influencing you? What are you watching on TV? What are you listening to on the radio? There's a saying in Spain Spanish that says, show me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. There's great warning in the scriptures to stay focused. Be careful how you walk because the days are evil. Make the most of your time. We're to be on the offensive, not just casually going through life, hoping that at the end of our life, we end up there. I see in James, most of you should be teachers by now, eating meat, steak, but you're drinking milk. And then as Paul says, rather than according to Christ, focusing on the grace of who Christ is, the hope of the gospel, he gets on this tangent again. Last week, I mentioned in verses 16 through 20 that we see all of this by him, for him, through him, in him, through him, through him. All of this about Jesus. And I told the story about two weeks ago how I went into Home Depot and I got these foam pads. I mean, four by eight foam pads. I thought I could squeeze them into the minivan. I couldn't. Started with five. Then I walked out there and the pro help guys at at Home Depot, one guy in particular, he's like, oh, man, we can get that on. And he totally, I mean, there was twine, cardboard. I could do 100 coming to Valley Center. And not that I could, because in a minivan, I would, you know, I barely can get the speed limit going up over the hill. But those things weren't going anywhere. We ended up putting 10 on there, and it was hilarious. It took him like an hour. And the guy at the end says, these things aren't going anywhere. You're not going to budge them to the left, to the right, to up or down. You're solid. And what that guy did with those boards, I said, is what Paul did with Christ, that there was no wiggle room. He is absolutely 100% God. This week I had to go back. I installed my first toilet yesterday. And I picked up the toilet earlier in the week and I was wheeling out through Home Depot. I saw the same guy. He looked at me. He's like, you need help with that? I'm like, I think I can fit it in the inside. He's like, well, we could strap it to your roof if you want. It won't go anywhere. Like, we're kind of chuckling. I'm like, no, no, I'm good, brother. I'm good. There's nowhere in Colossians where Paul's going to give any wiggle room to let us say that Jesus isn't God. He is 100% completely without a doubt identified through the scriptures and by his own testimony that he is God. So as Paul ends, verse 8, rather than according to Christ, he goes into this tangent. And we're going to see a lot of in him, in him, he is, in him, with him, with him. The same situation again. Verse 9, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So in Christ, the fullness or completeness of deity. Now, Now, there's times in my study throughout the week that I simply run out of time or resources to further investigate a word. And this word deity here is unique. It's the only place in the entire New Testament that this word for deity is used. And I'm like, there's something to this word. And as I did my research, I I know there's a gem somewhere out there that I can quote from, but I haven't found it yet. But in essence, what I've discovered from this, the fullness of deity, the uniqueness of this word that is set apart from other uses of the word deity, is that it says that Christ, the fullness, the completeness of divinity 
in his nature as opposed to essence. He's like, this is where the trucker hitch is going down, wrapping around, saying that in Christ, divinity, God is complete, full in bodily form. There's no question about this. And he says, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's attacking the Gnosticism teaching that is creeping into the church. He goes on to say, and in him, in Christ, you've been made complete. Now, this word complete and the word previously fullness, it's the same exact word in the Greek New Testament. So you could say, in him, you have been made full. Or you could take the other verse and say, in him, all the completeness of God dwells in him in bodily form. But through Christ, you become complete as a person. In our culture, in our world, you individually, me personally, we struggle for significance, completeness. Who we are, we chase it in other avenues, whether it's drink, uh, relationships, jobs. We want significance because we feel insufficient or incomplete. And our only true completeness comes through Christ And he says, in him you've been made complete, and he is, Christ is, head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Huh? Like, what is this? What's this talk about circumcision? And in him you were also circumcised. Okay, are we just talking about Jewish boys that were circumcised on the eighth day? Or is he dressing all Christians? He says, well, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this isn't cutting off the foreskin by a, by a rabbi. This, a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision. What is he talking about? And if you go over to Romans chapter 2, at the very end of Romans chapter 2, that Paul gives clarity in this. As Paul is making his claim... In the first three chapters of Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. In verse, chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, he writes this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So he's attacking this at the Jewish people. They were circumcised on the eighth day. And the question is why? They were circumcised to, to separate them from the rest of the world, that God was setting them apart as a people. They were different. And so Paul says, you're not a Jew who's one outwardly, this outward religious action. That's not what makes you a Jew. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And so as we come back to Colossians, Paul is, a, is attacking this, this religious idea, this system of works that if you do these things, then you become acceptable before God. And there are those that will condemn you if you don't do certain things or that you do certain things. And as he brings up circumcision here, he's like, I'm not talking about circumcision of the flesh. I'm talking about the person, as Ephesians 1.13 says, that after hearing the gospel, you believed in him. You were sealed for the day of redemption, that you received this heart transplant, that your new creation in Christ, that there was this circumcision done in your heart, that you were changed. And from this, he's going to lead in. 
to baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. So he's kind of linking the two and they, they sort of are where, where circumcision in the Old Testament was for male children. Baptism is for all believers, male and female. And because of these linking, this is where some faith traditions will baptize children. I was baptized in a children. I will not baptize babies now. The, the thinking is, is that if circumcision was done for children, then as he relates in this passage, baptism to circumcision, therefore baptism relates to babies. The problem is that as I see it is in verse 12, as it says, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him through faith. That through faith kind of puts a, a wrench in the system. Because the only thing I remember about my baptism as a child was from pictures. There's a picture with a priest holding me over a little birdbath of water. And apparently he submersed me into it or he splashed water onto my forehead. There's no video. I don't exactly know what, I, what happened. There was no faith on my part. There was no regeneration on my part. And so I would agree with them. I want to be careful saying this. That baptism is for babies, baby Christians. So when you accept Christ, regardless of your physical age, you're a baby Christian. You've just received Christ. You've been, you've been made anew, transferred into the body of Christ. Baptism is for you. But I would encourage you, don't be like me. I was baptized as a child and I clung on to that baptism as a child after conversion for years. Years and years and years. And I tried to say, oh... Well, I was baptized as a child. I've become a Christian now, but I've, I've, I've come far enough in my walk. Now I've been a Christian for like four or five years. Well, I was baptized in 99. I, I think I became a Christian in 96. So three years, an eternity had passed for me. I was so mature in the faith after three years of walking with the Lord that to go back and to be baptized, that, man, that would be embarrassing. I had already started Bible college. I was growing. And this is where God sent Anna into my life. And she began to gently asking me questions and challenging me and asking certain things. And so then running a marathon in Denver, I saw the light. Literally, I saw it was really bad. But then I started running next to a guy, Bud, who was a pastor down in Atlanta somewhere coming to run this marathon. And through our conversation, I said, you know what? I need to be baptized. And would you baptize me? And so after that marathon, I was baptized in August of 2001. And so why do we get baptized? From the scriptures, what we see is, is it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a picture. A, a wedding band is a picture. I, can, I, I can't take it off right now because my hand's too tight. It, it doesn't come off easy. <laughs> But a wedding band, if I take it off, it doesn't make me unmarried. Yesterday, I did this cowboy wedding set in the mid-1800s. It was awesome. And they'd asked, in meeting, I couldn't get dressed up. I, I tried. I tried everything I could do to try to come up with Victorian-style dress. But I said, if you want me to find the manuscript of, the, of what they would do for a wedding ceremony, I would be happy to do it. They're like, oh, the more authentic you could, that would be great. And I'm like, you guys understand what the, like, 
it's going to be in your face. They're like, the more authentic, the better. And I'm like, okay, this is awesome. I researched it. Man, I was like in tears just reading the old wedding ceremonies. And yesterday when I stood there, he had a bunch of guys with shotguns and guns. And I mean, it was, it was sweet. And I said, okay, guys, I don't normally speak like this, so I have to read because the verbiage is so hard. I, I can't just speak it naturally. And in the opening, one of the opening lines was asking the couple, is there anything between you that you need to confess right now? But it was worded in a way that, is there anything that betwixt you that needs to be known that will be revealed on the dreadful day of judgment? Half the people laughed like you guys. And then people were coming up who are believers that were like, that is intense. Now, then as they slipped on the rings and the repeating after me part, it's with this ring, I thee wed. With this ring, I worship thee with my body. With this ring, I thee give you my troth, which I had to look up, which means fidelity, uh, faithfulness. And so while it's just a symbol, you could slip on a wedding ring all day long. doesn't make you married. But there's something significant when you're making those vows and you slip it on. So there's great significance in the wedding band, but there's also not. Where baptism is this picture, a symbol like a wedding band. And it says, having been buried with him in baptism. If you notice that when you get baptized, nobody ever goes forward getting baptized it's always backwards or if there's ailments you can go straight down how many people have you seen well you guys i don't know how much experience yeah but very few people are buried face down it's always on their back and so when you're baptized and you go back it's this picture of death like the scripture says for having been buried with him when you submerse yourself in the water the word baptism is baptizo Baptism is a transliteration. It means to submerse, not sprinkle. Every example in the New Testament is submersion. So you're going down with him. You're uniting yourself in death with Christ going under. In which you were also raised up with him through faith. The coming up is the new life. Raised up with him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision in your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. And if we were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we would see very similar uh, language. That we were dead in our sins and trespasses apart from Christ. And it says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt. I love this. On the paper a couple weeks ago, there was a service member. It was a Navy SEAL, a guy I knew. He was tragically injured. Uh, IED went off. He, he had some brain damage that affected his ability to communicate. He wasn't able to walk. And through one of the um, nonprofits, they basically gave him and his family a house in El Cajon. And why? It's like, oh, it just makes you feel good. But as I read this, another similarity where I see this is there's one of those home makeover shows. Anna knew the name, like Extreme Makeover. I don't know. Ty Pennington, the guy comes in. They totally revamp a person's house. And they come in and they're like, oh, crying and excited about what was done. But the coolest part that I like is not everyone, but a lot of them at the very end, they'll say, and 
such and such bank or such and such donor, we've paid off your mortgage. The house is yours free and clear. You thought that they were happy with the remodel. You should see them when their debt is paid off. And our certificate of debt with God is far greater than any mortgage that we have. And we're told that through Christ, he's canceled the debt against him. Consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us and the key phrase. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That Jesus on the cross, our debt against us, our sin that separates us from God, our sin that brings condemnation upon us. Jesus paid for it on the cross. He canceled it. Talk about going up to verse 7, overflowing with gratitude. If, if you don't understand how great a sinner you are, you don't need a savior. And the longer you walk with Christ as Paul did, you come to realize how, how much a sinner you are, even in Christ. Like you realize not only how much of a sinner you are, that you're getting worse, but you realize how holy God is. And then to realize that he took away that barrier through the cross, we have so much to be thankful for. And so we're baptized for a number of reasons. And I want to highlight this because at the end of July, we are going to have an opportunity for baptism. It's coming up in the text. We follow Christ's example. This one was a big one for me. Like in hindsight, to think that three years after my conversion and there was a lot of uh, it wasn't the poster child for, for Christianity today during those three years. But to think that I had excelled, that I had reached the point in my walk where I no longer needed to be baptized. Think of the pride in my heart for that. My wanting to be a social chameleon. Christianity was one thing, and I felt like if I had to fit in, I had to do all of these things in order to be accepted by the Christian culture. But it's not following after Christ. Christ being God. Christ was baptized not because he had any sin. If he could be baptized by John the Baptist, who, what was his baptism? The baptism of the repentance of sins, that he was challenging people, and Jesus comes to him and says, I want to be baptized. John says, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to to tie your shoes or to untie them. I forget which way it went. John says, I got to be baptized. Or Jesus says, I have to be baptized. And so John baptized him. As he comes up, the father says, it's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Or do what he says. So we follow Christ's example. You could have been a Christian for 30 years and you haven't been baptized. Jesus commands us to be baptized it's a it's an act of obedience as we're baptized it's saying you know what jesus was baptized he commands us to be baptized i'm going to do it and and obedience in the small things leads to greater uh, opportunities for god to work in your life and so as you follow him as you go publicly to display to the world your new life in christ you're obeying him it's a time for people to come out I intentionally do our baptisms at Adams Park. We could have a great pond right here that we could do baptisms. I would rather go somewhere public so that we can show the world, people who have trusted in Christ, that they go down their old life in Christ, they come up anew. And we do this because Jesus paid it all for us.
And it lets the world know who Jesus is in small ways. And I love this whole, the joy as we realize that. There's that worship song, Here I Am to Worship. And there's a line in that song that always gets me. It almost, it, 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 at times, it gets me so emotionally choked up that I can't even say the words for fear that I'm going to like totally just break down like a two-year-old bawling. And it says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. But, yes, it's a free gift. Grace has, grace has made it available to us for free, a gift. But that doesn't mean that it was cheap. It came at great expense to Christ to bear the sins of the world. And in that song, it says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you, you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. And when we recognize what Jesus did on the cross for us, this gratitude comes bubbling out. And so Paul continues, having nailed it to the cross, verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Christ conquered all. When he stood there before Pontius Pilate, not really speaking, and Pontius Pilate looks at him saying, listen, don't you understand the authority I have, your life is in my hands. You're innocent as far as I can tell, but you need to help me so that I can get you off the hook. And I see Jesus looking up with a grin on his face and saying, there's no authority that you have that hasn't been granted to you by my father. What's being done here is being done by my choice. My life isn't being taken. I'm giving it away. He'd conquered all. And in verse 16, we see the therefore. We saw one warning back in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through empty philosophy and all this other stuff. Verse 16, we see another warning. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food or drink or in respect of festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's starting to hit religion. These, these things that, that may be things of men or things from the Old Testament that Christ did away with, what, things that you eat and drink or celebrations that you celebrate, the festivals, the Sabbath day, these things very much are in debate today. That there are those on the religious spectrum that say, you can't eat that, you're not supposed to eat that, you're not supposed to eat that. You need to worship on the Sabbath. You need to worship on this day or you need to do this or not do that. And Paul says, let no one be your judge. If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes here. Or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 23. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, dealing with the same sort of problem of the issue was circumcision. Okay, you're a Christian now. You've trusted in Christ. But that's not enough. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to add this work to it. He writes, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. This being captive. Being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. 
Therefore, the law has become our tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So we're told that all of the 613 commands in the Old Testament that were given to Israel, not to Gentiles, they were given as a school teacher that as they tried and attempted to do them, they failed. You put rules in place and it reveals the sin in your heart. Man, I was horrible every time I visited Singapore. All I want to do in Singapore, two things, chew gum and spit. Why do I want to do those two things? Because they're outlawed there. All I want to chew gum and spit. Because there's evil in my heart. And as we attempt to follow the Old Testament, what we realize is that we are terribly wicked and sinful and we can't do certain things. And it's the point is to Christ that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and we need him. As we're turning back, stop at Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 before we go all the way back. Galatians chapter 5, which I referenced earlier, it says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See this captivity. Don't fall back into that yoke, that bondage. Christ set us free. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He's saying if you receive Christ and then you start putting in place this religious things, don't eat, don't touch, don't drink, all of these rules that you're to do or not to do, what you're doing is you're chopping away from the cross. You're saying that the cross, God's grace was not sufficient for you. He says as you put this religion in place, trying to create uniformity, What you're doing is, is you're knocking down the cross. The cross is totally sufficient. God's grace is completely sufficient for us. As we go back down, as we move down chapter five, verse 13, it says, you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Going back to Colossians chapter two. He says, therefore, No one is to act as your judge as regard to food or drink in respect to festival or new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ, that these things point to Christ. And Christ is actually the essence, the the person, what it's all about. What I like about this, that last part I read in Galatians, Paul doesn't criticize those that maybe have convictions. A certain way. But we have to realize that convictions are that, that we receive are not necessarily commandments to others. And I have a lot of dear brothers and sisters, not a lot, but a handful of them that I'm friends with that are is some that are maybe in the more messianic Christian camp that maybe have a Jewish background or not. Where they still try to maintain the Mosaic law and to say certain types of food are not legal for Christians to eat. While Paul would criticize them and say, you can't project that on other people because we're freedom. We're no longer bound by the law. As Gentiles, we weren't even under the law. But then as we read Romans, there's freedom there that, you know what? I don't have that conviction. So my brothers in Christ that have 
convictions about worshiping on the Sabbath day or not eating certain types of food, there's freedom for them there. And Paul doesn't criticize them. He just says, don't let them criticize you. Don't let this system where we think that we're cops for God, where we're writing out tickets for people. Ah, you're reading out of the NIV. That's a ticket. (laughs) Oh, you listen to syncopated music. I have no idea what that is, but I know it's a big deal in some circles. That's a ticket. Oh, you came to church in flip-flops. That's a big ticket. See, but that's religion. And when I became a Christian, I was so worried about following after these man-made rules that aren't from the scripture. And it's a burden. It will break your spirit. And Paul makes a big deal about it. The substance is Christ. It's all about Jesus. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you and defraud like this whole, I think of counterfeit. See, the thing with counterfeit money, the best kind of counterfeit money is a kind that looks identical to the real thing in touch and paper. Defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen inflated without a cause by his fleshly mind. So that says, don't do that. Don't cherish these things. Don't be defrauded. He's going to say later on, which we'll get to as we're almost wrapped up, he'll say, these things seem in human wisdom, they seem to be good ideas. But it's a fraud. It's, it's forgery. So verse 18 is things not to do. What to do is in verse 19. It says, and not holding fast. So this is uh, to flip it into the positive. We are to hold fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth, which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as? He said, if you're alive in Christ, why do you keep falling backwards? You should have movement towards Christ that you should grow deeper in him. And the decrees that they're falling back into that are apart from Christ. I just see somebody pointing their finger. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He said, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He's like, these are all rules that man made up. What does the Bible say? And this isn't a case for a big word, antinomianism, which means that without law. Because in the New Testament, there are commands for Christians to submit to. There's plenty of stuff in the New Testament. There's plenty of stuff in the scriptures that that, that say, you know, as a, you're supposed to love. There's all sorts of examples there's too many to list right now off the top of my mind but he's saying don't fall for like the the ones that men make up the rules that we come up that have no issue with the authority of scripture it has to do with personal preference and maybe personal conviction he said these are matters verse 23 which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom they appear to be wise i think which is the most difficult thing because they're There's wisdom in some of the religious stuff. It's like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. All the music that sounds really bad, it has syncopated beat to it. 
So why don't we just outlaw syncopated rhythm altogether? Sounds good. I can see how in the essence it appears to have wisdom. And then all of a sudden, well, what about if there's a Christian song that has syncopated music? Well, that's out too because that syncopated stuff, whatever it is, is bad. It's always bad when you use an illustration that you have no idea what it means. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not one of them. <laughs> but self-made religion, it appears, to, it appears to have wisdom and self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. But they are no value of fleshly indulgence. They actually don't work. And I'm kind of leaving us hanging this week. If we were to continue on into chapter 3, we get a, a therefore. Okay, if this stuff doesn't work, where do we go? It says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, following this death that you died with Christ, well, if you died with him, you were also raised with him. And if you were raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind to the things above. This is what we're going to cover next week. Andre and Susan Giorgi are going to be at church next Sunday. They said, hey, brother, do you want to preach? He's like, no, nah, man, you've been like just longing to get to Colossians 3. I'm going to let you have it. But there's going to be a treat. They're going to be here next week. But where I want to end is going back to verse 6, since we can't go there. Verse 6 and 7, the essence of Christianity. Where did Paul start in this section? It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, my question to you is, have you received him? Have you reached the place in your life where you know, yes, I've believed upon Christ that he died for me according to the scriptures and that in him I have new life? That's your hope. The hope of the gospel, as he's already referred, have you received Christ? And if you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, live your life in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. And established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. There's no question in my mind as we close. That as I read the scriptures, as I read on teachings of following after Jesus, the Christian life isn't stagnant. It's not, okay, I believed in Jesus, so now I have fire insurance. And when I die, I'm going to heaven, and I'm good to go, and I'm just going to keep living my life as I lived before Jesus. The scriptures make it clear that if you've received Christ as Savior, you're a new creature. And fruit will begin to blossom in your life. Things will take root. You'll get grounded. You'll become steady. You'll grow. And I think this happens at different speeds for different people. I don't think it comes quickly. Some people... I think can become Christians and they can have a quick through the gospel behavioral modification like, oh, I was an alcoholic and now I'm sober. But maturity takes time. But there needs to be progress. And if you've accepted Christ and there hasn't been change and nothing's changed and you've been living for 20 years and you're the same person that you were before you professed Christ, well, maybe you didn't really profess him, come to know him as Lord. I don't know. But I know that God doesn't want us to stay where we are. He meets us where we are, and then he moves us by his grace closer to Christ, and he begins the refining work in our life. And so, Father, I come before you today, and I just thank you, Lord, for our church. Father, we thank you for this word. And, Father, as we have heard it, Lord, I pray that you would 
Humble each one of us, Lord. Father, if we haven't received you as Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to bridge the gap, Lord, that we would be able to hear the gospel, to believe upon it, that we would be redeemed, that we would have exchanged lives. And Father, we know that this life is filled with ups and downs and setbacks, and we stumble and we fall. But Lord, I pray that you would help us all to have progress in our life, Lord, that we would bear much fruit. Lord, help us to abide in you. Lord, we want to abide in you. We want to walk with you. We need help. Father, guard our hearts from religion and 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 placing rules and and do not do this or touch that or taste this or handle this. Father, help us to point people to Christ and him alone. For he is our all in all. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.